just hearing a live piano play again is unbelievable if you haven't heard a piano played live for six months. It is unbelievably wonderful. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and this week I'm talking with Charles R. Cross. You might know Charles for his work chronicling the lives and deaths of two legends of Seattle music, Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix. Before that, he was the longtime editor of The Rocket, a local newspaper devoted to music, if you can imagine such a thing. Recently, Charles has been writing for Crosscut, and a few days ago he wrote about returning to one of his favorite old music venues here in Seattle to give blood. The story is really about the music industry and the state of that industry, which is pretty rough right now especially for artists and workers dependent on the live music scene. And so I wanted to bring Charles on to talk about what's at stake here and what the future looks like for music venues here and across the country. Charlie, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you so much, Mark. Glad to be here. So to set the scene, I'd like to start by reading a couple of quick passages from the story that starts with you at the more sitting with a phlebotomist, uh, preparing to give blood, listening to Patti yeah, Smith. Did we ever your, think oh. in the music industry the word phlebotomist would end up in an article about the music industry in Seattle? Like, unless you're writing about Keith Richards, the word phlebotomist <laughs> should not appear in a story on music. But nonetheless, it did. <laughs> All right. So you wrote that the cost of my admission by concert ticket standards was cheap. I had to give a pint of blood. I've given more than that to get Rolling Stones tickets. And in my youth, I slam danced at enough punk shows at the Moor that I'm certain that there are still traces of my plasma on the stage. Then later you wrote, it seemed like a dream being back at the Moor. I wasn't prepared for how emotional it felt to be in the building again. I wondered if I would ever see the inside of any of Seattle's legendary music venues again. These places are hallowed ground. First, Charlie, can you tell me why were you giving blood at the Moor? Well, I honestly wanted to see the inside of the Moor or the Paramount again. The Paramount blood bank had sold out so fast. It sold out faster than Bruce Springsteen tickets. There were limited numbers of slots. I missed that one. So the next one I was able to grab was the Moor. I love that venue. I've seen so many shows there, and it's played such a big part in my imagination and what I think of when I think of Seattle music. So much of me is in that building, I feel. And I hadn't been there since COVID started. The last show I'd seen in the Moor was in November. Um, the last concert I saw anywhere was in Benaroya in February. But the likelihood of seeing another concert anytime soon is not great. Likely there will not be a performance in the Paramount for six months, maybe more. And not being in these venues just feels wrong in a way. Um, so I wanted to, one, get in the venue and also giving blood is really a great thing to do. But for me, I don't know if I would have given blood if they were giving it at the the local, uh, you know, Walgreens or something. But to get into the more uh, that got me out of my house. How long has it been since you have gone seven months without going to a concert? 
since I was 16, 15 years old. There, there's probably not been, well, there's probably not been a month of my life that I haven't really? been in the Paramount or the Moore somewhere. The Moore, you know, was kind of this place that bands on the, the rise would play once they had sold out all the Seattle clubs. Right. It's, it's crazy to think the Moore is also the site of an incredible number of kind of wakes for music. Mm. It's the site of the Temple of the Dog concert, which is essentially the wake for Andrew Wood. And I also had seen Mother Love Bone play at the Moor prior to that. And then it's also the essentially the the location of the wake in some ways for a bunch of people in the Mad Season combination of uh, Alice in Chains and a few other bands. And then all those people are themselves now dead. Chris Cornell uh, who who'd certainly played the Moor a number of times in in Soundgarden, right. Andy Wood um, of Mother Love Bone and Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, um, all gone. But the room still stands. That room, more than any other, sort of feels like the place that Seattle music still still reverberates, even in an empty room. Have you seen this this question that's going around about what is the most '90s concert you have ever been to? I have not seen that. Oh. I, I can answer that, you know, uh, unequivocally. On New Year's Eve 1989 for The Rocket, we did a concert that we called Nine for the 90s. And we picked the nine bands that we most thought were going to break through in the next decade. And hmm. this tells you a lot about where Seattle is because Nirvana is not on that bill at that point right. in 1989. Alice in Chains was. So, you know, I went out, emceed the show, and Alice in Chains, and there were eight other bands, all of whom were excellent, but by far and away, Alice in Chains stole the show. You know, they were kind of a goofy metal band with, uh, with some punk elements and some glam. Um, but that show right there was, to me, Okay, here's grunge. It is happening on stage. Uh, the yeah. music is evolving. But there were many other concerts in the 90s. I mean, Nirvana played the Paramount on Halloween 1991. Um, and that was really their first really big concert in Seattle. It's weird to think back. I mean, that now is we're at Halloween almost again. That's crazy to think that now that's uh, 29 years ago, almost 30 years. Uh, it was not sold out. But that was a, a hell of a 90s experience, I will say, to see Nirvana the day they got a gold record at the Paramount. And in their prime, it, it could be argued that might have been the best show they ever did in Seattle. You know, listening to you recount this history and, and these artists, quite a few of whom, you know, who passed away earlier than, than they should have, it occurs to me that this is a music scene in particular that has had its fair share of tragedy that goes beyond anything that you just said um, and also extends into people fighting for spaces, fighting for the ability to dance, to, to, to have shows. And it's not unique to Seattle necessarily. I think that music venues have always been businesses that have been uh, a bit against the grain and have always had to fight for their space and fight to make a little noise. And now we are in the middle of an existential fight for these venues. And I wonder how you view the current moment in the overall 
history of the live music industry in Seattle? Well, it's interesting because I wrote a piece for Crosscut, I think in January, about how how in trouble all the clubs were. And that was before COVID had made its way to America. The process of gentrification, particularly in a couple of these West Coast cities, Seattle and San Francisco, have, has been particularly damaging to music venues. As real estate prices have increased, as demand for housing has increased, music venues to hold a crowd need large rooms. And those rooms have been threatened in Seattle basically for about the last 15 years. 20, 30 years ago, there was space. There was available space that you could put a music club in and start one um, mm. and you get an audience. But the last 15 years has been a nightmare for anybody trying to maintain any kind of space for artistic purposes. And we've seen that happen, not just to music, but to dance companies, to theater companies. There's always a debate. Where is historical preservation? When do we save a venue? When do we save a building? And when does it make sense to tear it down? You know, 12th Avenue Arts and Hugo House on Capitol Hill are great examples of things that, that, that got transformed and became really wonderful spaces. But music venues kind of by their nature always are in kind of sleazy areas of town, but they have an amplifying effect. You know, Numos did a, a survey and found that they brought in something like $9 million to the surrounding neighborhood over the course of a year in terms of the extra economic boon to restaurants. When you've got a music club that brings a thousand people in a night, that's a lot of traffic for local restaurants. You take that away out of a environment in a neighborhood and suddenly you don't have as many people around. You don't have as much vibrancy. And that's very true of Seattle itself. As we lose music venues, as we lose artistic venues, people do not drive down to downtown Seattle and eat at a Vietnamese restaurant to go visit their friend in an apartment. They do before a music show. It will be very, very hard for virtually every club in Seattle to survive this. I, you know, Steve Severin at Numos says that he thinks 90% of all music venues will die without some kind of government support in the next year. And that means in Seattle, we'll have two or three clubs left. I don't want to see that happen. Many people don't want to see that happen, but I do think it changes just even what Seattle is. Are we an artistic amplification creative zone or are we a center for tech workers to telecommute i want us to be the former all right we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more from charles cross hi my name is agatha pacheco flores and i'm a staff writer on the arts and culture desk here at crosscut so this pandemic and the protests are big news stories but they're also big culture stories in the past few months, we've been trying to get beyond the stats and the breaking news to explore how these events are changing the ways that we live and express ourselves, whether that's through socially distanced photography or politically charged graffiti. All of this reporting is free for you, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com slash donate. Okay, 
back to the show. So in the piece you write about this conference call that you were on with this group or new initiative called Keep Music Live Washington. And they're pushing for support. I think that they are requesting a $21 million infusion from the state. Um, there, of course, is the uh, larger effort, um, the Save Our Stages Act, which is a federal bill that um, would amount to $10 billion of relief for live music venues. When you're on that call, are people feeling like this is possible? Is there a sense of hopelessness around this? What, where, where are people's heads at? The mood is both people mad and wanting to act and then also people frustrated at how difficult this is and how high the barriers are going to be. We have people that are activists that will make phone calls, that will lobby legislatures. You know, we did get some of our Congress people behind this. So we do have we do have a very activated city, but the, the organization website is Keep Music Live WA. You know, they want to raise a lot of money. And, um, you know, one of their concepts is to go after some of the other people in the city who benefited by Seattle's arts. Did Amazon.com benefit by having Seattle be a hip, cool city from coffee, music, and bookstores? Did that allow them to bring employees here and want to live here and make them a happening company? Absolutely, a thousand percent, yes. Has Microsoft, have the other game companies, all of whom have profited considerably in the pandemic, have those companies profited by the idea of Seattle as an artistic hub? They have. And uh, I do think it would be great if there was a point where we supported the arts and realized that we get so much out of the city. And there are people who profit by Seattle's hipness and Seattle's art scene. That helps you know, a number of companies to attract talent here more than attracting talent to Oklahoma City or some other place that I want to slam uh, because they stole their sports team. <laughs> you know, I, I talked to one of the owners of one of these music venues for my piece, and he's paying $40,000 a month in rent for a venue that no one's been in, in nine months and no one's going to be able to go in in nine months. I think part of the argument here is that Music venues by the nature of the pandemic will be the single last businesses to open up. Singing itself potentially transmits the virus, the crowded group of people at a show. It's very hard to socially distance at a Green Day concert. So the reality is that this industry has been hit harder than almost any other industry. If it were airplanes, we would be giving government support. And frankly, we are giving government support. Uh, we gave incredible tax breaks to Boeing to try to keep them in the state, and yet they're leaving. The money is there. The question is just what are our priorities? For me, okay. the arts are as important as food and water to surviving. I, I couldn't live without the arts in my life. Charlie, I wonder... Well, it's just that this is something that's missing from all of our lives. I think that we're, we're all trying to figure out how to exist in a world where we can't get in a room together, hear a song, sing along, dance, be with strangers, like all of these things that if you are someone who loves live music is really essential to your being. 
how are you coping? What what have you been doing in these last seven months to try to to find the joy that you get from live music? Well, I don't think you can replicate it. I've got a 20-year-old son who has mostly not been home, but you know, I have a Steinway piano in the other room and he came the other day and sat down and started playing. And I realized he, he hadn't been home for a number of months, but just hearing a live piano play again is unbelievable if you haven't heard a piano played live for six months. It is unbelievably wonderful. And he, it didn't help that he sat down and started playing Neil Young's After the Goal Rush, which is about as sad a song as you possibly can play. And to see my kid play a song that I loved when I was a kid without being prodded just made me literally weep. It makes you think about how special those shows you were. Not like I didn't appreciate the shows I saw, but it, it you go back and you go, oh my God, I can't believe that... Um, you know, somebody asked me yesterday in another Zoom I was on, well, have you ever seen Patti Smith? And that was the last show that had been scheduled in Seattle, and that show was canceled that afternoon. To be honest, I probably wasn't going to go. And I was tormented by that. I actually had second row tickets to that show in the Paramount. And, it, you know, I'd love to be there with Patti Smith, but um, at that point, I, I wouldn't have risked it, I think. But I, I really am mourning not seeing that show. And um, I'm thinking back on the 35 shows I have seen by her, and they all seem like somehow even more special moments in my life. You really can't replicate live music. I've participated and watched dozens, dozens, maybe almost 100 live streams of music. And... I encourage people to do that. I want to be part of it. I want to support them. I've tipped artists when I've watched them. I've donated to causes, but it still isn't the same. You know, Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie famously did about three weeks when the pandemic started, where he broadcast every day, and they were just fantastic. But even Ben Gibbard, you know, the number of viewers that watch those streams went down over time. But it, if you were going to see the Rolling Stones, you sure as heck are going to show up by 7.30. You're going to be there. Um, you are on. I, I, many Zoom calls and live stream. I've been washing my clothes, doing dishes or other things. You're not focused on any kind of computer uh, interaction the way you are when you're there hearing music in person. Hmm. I, uh, you know, I think... Everybody has a relationship with music. Some people really lean on music to really take them through tough times, perhaps more than others. I think that maybe you and I are a couple of those. Is there any single song or album or artist who you find yourself returning to over these last seven months that gives you a sense of, of hope or of comfort? That's interesting. And uh, I, you're going to find this hilarious, but I have been listening to swing music from World War II era more than oh. ever before. And there is something comforting about those big band recordings or those vocal people that were already in a time where the world seemed like it was falling apart. 
So listening to, I, I have a CD that literally is called Songs That Got Us Through World War II. I've been playing that more than any other CD during this time. Those songs are comforting. They're, they're, they're upbeat because the world was pretty damn dark after Dunkirk. If you were, if you were playing in a British speakeasy and a bomb might drop on you, it, it probably felt a little bit like it does in America in the Trump era. All right. That's Charles R. Cross. You can read his story at crosscut.com. It's called My Heart and Arm Bleeds for the Seattle Music Scene. Thank you so much, Charlie, for coming on the show. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Mark. Always nice to talk to you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Charlie for coming on the show this week. Uh, And before we go, I want to remind you that we have a live event coming up. On Wednesday, October 28th, I'm going to be speaking with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof and author Cheryl Wu Dunn about finding hope in this very trying time. Go to crosscut.com slash events for more information and to RSVP. Also, if you're a regular listener, you might have noticed that this week's Crosscut Talks is a little different from past episodes. We're always trying to improve the listening experience for you while keeping the conversation front and center. But if you have any feedback, please let us know by emailing talks at crosscut.com. This episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.